Welcome to the Tom Castro Shooting Academy podcast. You have now entered the next level. All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Tom Castro Shooting Academy. Uh, I am in Tennessee right now visiting my parents, uh, working on their house. This is actually after New Year's, so I hope everybody had a good Christmas and a good New Year's. But I have a couple special guests, but the main man that I wanted to bring on was Mr. Yi Min. And there goes my camera. Say hello, Mr. Yi Min. Hey, what's up, guys? Thanks for having and me I, on today. And actually, I mispronounced his name. I think it's actually Mr. President. I'm just a guy, Tom. I'm just a guy. I have Mr. Turbo Tyler and Todd Holmes, Mr. Match Director for South Carolina. So... Um, I'm actually really excited to have Mr. Yee Min on because I'd like to clear the air with a couple of things that I think a lot of people just talk a lot of trash on the internet and don't actually get to talk to the man himself. So let's talk about it. Mr. Yee Min, you have been president for how long now? About six months? Has it even been that long? Uh, October 1st. So I think we're at starting the fourth, third month now. No, fourth wow. month. Starting the fourth month. All right, so here's my biggest complaint. How come you haven't completely changed USPSA already? I mean, what are you waiting for? <laughs> well, part of you know, part of it is the way that the organization is structured right now. So that's bullshit. Um, we voted for you. You're supposed to change everything by yourself. I'm sorry I didn't put out put out my 100 day manifesto like being the president of the actual United States. <laughs> well, if anybody understands how government really works. Uh, the president don't get shit done either. So you're doing a good job, dude. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you've been in there about four months. So four months, what is the number one thing that you were surprised by? Just how much the president has to do, even with the supposed lessening of responsibilities. Um, you know, I, I came in October 1st. Um, I had some residual stuff left over from the previous administration. Then it was two nationals. Then it was a world shoot. Then it was get back from the world shoot and all the planning that comes with, you know, hey, what, what, is, what is the organization going to do for 2023? Um, trying to figure out, you know, how the organizational structure works right now. So as, as has been discussed, you know, we have a managing director and there's a president. So the way that that particular setup works is as the president, I'm sort of the face of the organization. You know, you provide the overall guidance direction of, hey, this is what the organization is all about. And then Donna Webb, who's our managing director, she's the one who actually has to figure out how to make my crazy promises actually work. <laughs> um, so, dude, and, you are a perfect president. That's how it is. It usually works, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it, it, you know, part of it is just kind of feeling it out, right? I mean, we were talking about uh, a president that lives on the West Coast, a managing director that lives on the East Coast. So, you know, we're trying to essentially figure out how that organizational relationship works without necessarily being in office, you know, seeing each other on a day-to-day -day basis. And, you know, that's definitely a feeling out process. So. Yeah, we talked about that actually before I brought you on the, pro on the podcast, uh, I think a couple of days ago, just to kind of have an idea of like, so some, I, I had some questions about exactly how, you know, your job worked or whatever before we came on the podcast, because honestly, I didn't really have a clue about what you had to do. And it was funny because we're friends and we've, I've known you for, well, since I've been in the sport, the first time I ever met you, I think was at Utah. You were the, um, the, the cool RO that would allow us to pick a song um, for at least for a little while. 
uh, <laughs> that kind of got, you know, smashed out. But um, so it's funny because I was talking to you a little bit about how, like when you came in, what was the big difference for you and, and like how it was to like, did USPSA, did the people that were already there kind of help you? And I thought it was interesting because it's just like any other corporation. It's you have to learn how to work with other with the new people. It's you can't just come in, kick the door in and go, hey, I'm here. I'm running the joint. It doesn't work that way for any corporation. Well, at least not any successful corporation. So I thought it was really interesting in our conversation that you were like, yeah, you have to learn what people do, like what they like, what their jobs, job opportunities or what their jobs are, you know, what my job's going to be. So I thought that was kind of, uh, that was kind of an interesting conversation that we had. I thought it was pretty neat. So, so who's your, who's the main person that you deal with the most? Is it Donna? Uh, it's mostly with Donna. Uh, it's also with the board members. So trying to keep them all in the same sheet of music and you know, that that's a bit of a challenge in and of itself. Uh, it's a lot more, it's a lot more phone calls than I thought. I'm probably on the phone way more than I expected just to kind of settle things out that it's really difficult to settle out with email until you get to understand each other's personalities and you right. kind of know how uh, people tick. Um, and there's a fair amount of work that I do with Jake as well. So just try to, uh, figure out, you know, hey, how how do nationals work? What are the things that we, you know, what's the process that's in place? Um, as well as, you know, talking to him about, you know, hey, what, you know, what what are some ideas for, you know, where you see the organization reaching out to the members and marketing and whatnot. And so, um, it's you know, it's very it's very different. Obviously, when you're in that position, you start looking behind the curtain and you're like, okay, you know, there's a lot of information that we just don't really know on the outside, and and some of that is being able to go, hey, how can we present some of this information to the members on a more regular basis so that it's not just, you know, you're not assuming a lot of things. And, and I think that's that, you know, having a conversations like this is really good to kind of hash that out because, you know, there's a lot of things that were done in the past. And, you know, I can't, I, I can't take that back, you know, what's done is done. Um, but it's trying to take those individual steps forward to say like, okay, you know, this is one way that we're trying to uh, present more information out there for the members so that they at least have an understanding of, you know, what we're trying to consider when we're going through the decision-making process. So, so it's an open active conversation in the board members and yourself and Donna to actually talk about getting more information out to the, to the, uh, to the members, like, in other words, trying to open up, I don't want to say the books, but I guess that's the best, you know, like basically if rule changes come, um, you know, how nationals is going to be ran here, just getting more information to us as members. Well, and obviously you guys are members as well. I mean, you don't just become board members, you are members. So it does matter as well, what you guys think as well. Would you say that when in that process, are there things that we just don't need to know <laughs> that people maybe ask for that. They don't, it's none of our business. I mean, I, I, I guess I just don't really give a shit about the politics. Like a lot of other people do, but I also care that our sport grows. So uh, I guess sometimes the politics and caring about the sport growing sometimes doesn't, um, they kind of blend together. It kind of sounds like you're bitching about things not being done, but I also see, areas where the sport could grow, but it turns in, it, it turns into a us versus them. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't be that way. If that makes sense. Um, some, I mean, it really is just, a, it's a, it's a conversation. It's a communication process, right? So, I mean, if you take a look at uh, what was presented out of the last uh, board meeting with the rules audits and the proposed 
uh, provisional division and all these other ideas that are being put out there in front of the membership. I think the important thing to remember with that is that you know we've act, the organization actually has done a, a a pretty decent job of actually trying to get information out there. So you know once the membership uh, once the meetings were released, uh, Jake and Troy you know they got with their the with the NRI podcast and basically released that what, like Christmas Eve, Christmas Eve, Christmas morning, basically saying like, hey, this is what's out here. This is a little bit of the reason why this is why we're going uh, thinking about this process. Um, and, you know, compared to, you know, perhaps the way that information was released before, uh, there is a healthy discussion, right? I mean, nobody, no, nobody's actually decided on any of this stuff, right? I mean, we put this stuff, we put this information out for 30 days. Um, and really, the only thing that is up for actual vote is, okay, do we vote on this? Do we approve? Or do we delay this provisional division, and the rules audit that the uh, rules committee went through, you know, everything else, as far as production division capacity, uh, allowing optics into L10, uh, per the bylaws, you know, we we can't do anything about that until January of 2024. But we're putting this out there almost a year in advance so that people can kind of have a uh, an open discussion about that and kind of uh, weigh the pros and cons of you know is this the direction that we need to go with the sport and with the divisions in general. So yeah, I'd like you know. There's some areas where you know we are we are definitely making some progress to try to get information out in front of the members, so that they're at least aware of hey this is something we're thinking about. For the, I, on the surveys and everything that goes along with that, you man, is that going to be open to the public once it's completed or? Um, so that that is something that uh, is a setup on our end to be able to uh, see the results of the surveys. Um, that's something that uh, is still an ongoing discussion, but I think it's it's worthwhile for us to at least be able to present that out there. Um, you know, maybe not in its raw format. Oh, yeah. um, you know, I, so with with the surveys, you know, that was something that we also did on fairly short notice and like anything else, you know, but there's some questions that I, that, that could have been possibly worded better, but it, we felt that it was more important to get that information out there and have members, uh, to give members a format that they could at least somewhat be able to respond to that gave us some appropriate, um, you know, good data. Well, and I, and I appreciate the survey method better than reaching out to your board of directors <laughs> because you never really know right. what made it from your board of directors to the board meetings, et cetera, et cetera. So it adds that layer of transparency. And, if, and I don't expect the raw data, but if you could put some sort of data out there with the survey results, I think that's even gonna add even more transparency and hopefully gain some of that membership trust. I think you have to. In my opinion, if you don't put some type of results out there, I think that goes back, you're gonna see more people upset than ever before. Because at that point, you're never really giving them like we're listening to you. Does that make sense? Like it's, it's all it is, is most of these people want you to listen to, they want to be heard and they want to feel like they're being listened to. In my opinion, that from everybody I've talked to, they just feel like they're not being listened to. So if like, if you walk up to a, an area director and you have a 45 minute conversation about something and then you hear nothing about it ever again, it's like, wait a minute, we just had this big long conversation about this one thing that 50 people have all, you know, wanted to look at. And, and it just got, it's not that they blew it off. It's just that they never had an answer back. So I think that like, like Todd said, I think that is very important to give that some of those results back. 
right? It's like it's like voting for a president and then going, well, that guy won. Well, wait, what was the vote count? Oh, it doesn't matter. We just said he won. We know he won. Well, wait a minute. How the fuck do we know that you actually we actually counted the votes? You just pick that guy. So like right. it's stuff like that, like, you know, right. I you know, that you should have to give. I shouldn't say have to, but to get into the to the the conversation about the what you guys just posted. Amazing job. Like amazing job. I have only had time to go through the rules part of the actual survey that you sent out. And it took time, like 100%, but it was worth it to me because that's something recently that I've been, I've been noticing like just little specific rules. And some of them were actually in that, in that survey that they cleaned up the verbiage. They didn't even change some of the rules. They just cleaned up the verbiage. And I was like, wow, that is so much easier to understand. And I remember responding in one of the comments that, they they changed the rule on something. I can't remember exactly. I think I even took a picture of it because I was like, what the shit is that? Like, I'm confused and you made it easier to understand. Like, clean these words. There's too many words. <laughs> like, think of me as a dumbass because I am. Clean it up and make it easier for everyone to understand. And I and you know, the issue is is it's lawyer talk. It gets in the effing lawyers where it's like you feel like every time you have to fight or argue a conver- a rule, you're having a conversation with a lawyer. It shouldn't be like that. It should be like, look, clear. Your foot was out of bounds. You're out. Like, that simple. It shouldn't be like, well, if you were touching the rock, but you were a centimeter higher and you were in and there was a little air and I could see underneath you. Were, shut up. Like, just in or out. <laughs> you know, keep it simple and make them easy. So they cleaned up a lot of the rules. I really liked what they did with that. And I really like that they put it out for us to, to see it, even if it didn't matter what I wrote, right. Even if nobody changes a damn thing that I said, but it was nice to know that we, that we're making attempts to clean things up. And it was nice to see that from the board of directors. And and I know there's a rules committee that's not per se uh, on the board, but it was nice to see that they're trying to, you know, simplify things for the sport. Well, that, that, that whole process was really lengthy. I mean, so the way yeah. that the rules audit works, you know, Choi and uh, Jody and Kevin, you know, they basically got with the RBIs and, you know, you're talking about 10, 10, uh, what is it? 13 people that basically have to try to figure out, you know, what to clean up. And, and that, that back and forth process, you know, was about a year long. Uh, so by the time it was actually presented and, uh, and we got a chance to look at it as the rules committee presented this board, you know, I was really happy with, um, you know, the, the vast majority of what was proposed out there, you know, some things to give us a little bit more flexibility and stage design, uh, and, and really cleaning up some of the language, you know, and, and of course, not everything is, you know, hunky dory, but, you know, Hey, 85, 90% of that was stuff that I think we've all kind of said, Hey, how come, you know, we can't do this or how come the rule is written this way. And, And I think it's a step in the right direction. So that to me is what stuck out, stood out the most is, and they specifically asked some of the questions were directed at range masters. Um, so like guys like me who run a local match, like they're not talking to me as a nationals director. They're talking to me as a range officer or range master for my local matches. And some of the things that they asked, I was like, God, thank you for asking, you know, like the activating a, a, an activator, having to activate or have it hidden was one of them. And I was just like, yeah, we have like, it takes an extra 45 minutes sometimes to hide shit because of gamers. Right. And, and I'm not saying that gaming isn't part of it because I love that part of the game. It's trying, you're, you're thinking, right. People call it cheating to me. It's just, you're using your brain when someone else isn't, 
But sometimes you go through so much as a match director that you're bringing out four extra walls to hide shit, right? And you yeah. put up all these awesome activators and you're like, yeah, I got it. And some guy's like, oh, check this out. If I step on this, I can jump out of bounds and shoot this from here and never, or I don't have to activate it. It's like, what the hell? I just spent all that time and somebody saw something I didn't. So it's like little things like, you know, making them activate it, not just whatever it is, stick with it. Stop changing that rule. That's one rule that they've changed. I don't know how many times in the last two years, whether you activate it, you don't activate it. It's just like, what's the rule? But they're trying to clean it up a little bit. They asked some questions about it. So I, those are like little things like that. But they really kind of directed some of those specific questions to range masters. And I really appreciated that because in my opinion, this sport is held together by the local matches, not the major matches, but the locals. And if the locals get more support, this sport grows. If we only think about nationals, which I know that's USPSA's job is those bigger matches, but the locals are really where it's at. I mean. I know most of the guys that come to my locals will never go to nationals. You know, they just were, they're, they're not interested. They don't care. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a little bit of what we're going to try to focus on for next year. Um, you know, part of it is looking at the way that the organization is structured from national down to area, down to section. Right. I mean, it's, it's really, there's, there's not really, I mean, if you, if you ever have any questions, you know, how often do you go to your section coordinator as opposed right. to your area director, or you just, you know, call me directly because you're like, I got Eman's number. Right. And so, um, right. you know, there, I, I get right. And, and there, there are certain, th- and there are certain times where, you know, that makes sense, but at the same time, you know, the, there, there is, there is at least some discussion that, that we've had about, you know, what that organization, could that organizational structure be a little bit um, stronger in the sense that, hey, the section coordinator is really the first point of con- formal point of contact, right? Your section coordinators are elected. They're supposed to have bylaws, you know, per, per our bylaws. Um, you know, they're really kind of the first official person that you should be talking to. Uh, but again, you know, that those are just all discussions about how to, to strengthen that relationship. So uh, I, I want to add something to what you just said. One, I go to my section coordinator whenever I need something. Actually, we talk quite a bit, not, and not even just for problems. We just talk a little bit about our area, right? Like, cause he's a section coordinator. That's what you're supposed to do with him. Wait, who's um, your section coordinator? Uh, Steve Zug. Okay. I have never spoken with my area director about anything. Um, I just haven't, I didn't need anything. I, I go to section coordinator and then he takes care of everything that we need in our area. I, I, he just, he's great. He does a great job for me. Um, he's somebody I can have a conversation with and get an honest answer, you know, whatever. Um, what, what you just said about the organization, how it's nationals down to sectional or areas and then down to the locals. This is my opinion. I, I would like to see that mindset change to local matches, sectionals, nationals is the last thought because we don't have nationals without a strong local club period. If you don't have local clubs, you don't have this sport. There are not 35,000 people going to nationals, right? We have 35,000 members and I guarantee what, what do we fill nationals up with four or 500 shooters on an average? Yeah. It's roughly it, right? 10% of the membership that even attends an area match or nationals. So yeah. So no, why I, is not... nationals the most important thing in USPSA's mind? Just, just my opinion. Not, and this is not a bang on USPSA. God, if you say anything negative, everyone thinks you're fighting them, but I'm saying is we need to think from the bottom up. Cause really at the end of the day, 
the structure of our sport is at the bottom. We think it's the bottom, but the bottom of our sport is where this sport is. It's the base. It's what brings new shooters and what brings people to nationals, what brings people to area matches, to sectionals. If we don't have locals, we don't have shit. That's where USPSA gets the av- the most amount of money. Also, they don't get it from nationals. If anything, nationals cost them the most. So if you start supporting the local clubs, I think you'd see a big difference in the membership. You know, I mean, I just, I really do. I think you'd see a different attitude from a lot of the members too. You'd see a lot more people dedicated. I don't know if you'd find more volunteers. I just think people are lazy bastards. When you find a few hard workers, they just go, cool, man, he's got it. (laughs) Um, You know, and all of us run matches We're all, all four of us are on here that bust our ass and work a lot of matches. So I think you have a just, I don't know. I just feel like we're, you know, it's just, we need to go the opposite direction with the way we think in this sport. It needs to be from the local nationals down. Yeah. I mean, nationals is really kind of the halo thing that most, most people might see on the internet. Um, but again, as you said, you know, the vast majority of people, their experience with USBSA is going to be what their experience is like at a local club. Um, you know, we've, we've traditionally been very hands-off, uh, you know, basically as long as you follow the rules and at the same time, you know, maybe there's something to be said about, Hey, here's, you know, here's like a franchise document of sorts, like, you know, Hey, this is what it means to run a club. This is how you can market to your local area. You know, these are some things to think about. Um, and some of that is just acknowledging that, you know, what the, because we've avoided that sort of organizational reach before, well, the reality is, is that it, it exists, right? You know, yeah. if something happens at your club, you know, could it potentially get to, you know, my level? Yeah, probably. And and it's just, that's just the nature of the society we live in now. Right. Yeah, I don't think it stops at the club, no matter what. If it's affiliated with USPSA and it's a USPSA match, they can go in as far as they want. I mean, it's just like, I've had people quit helping because they were concerned about getting sued if somebody got hurt. And it was just like, you're on the range at the same time, buddy. It doesn't matter. <laughs> They're going right. to get anybody and everybody that they want. They can say, oh, he looked at me and it made me trip. Or he was talking in the background and distracted me. I mean, listen, lawyers are lawyers for a reason. They, they It's right. what they do, right? They find ways to get you in court and get you on that stand or whatever they got to do. So not to talk bad about lawyers. Good job. You're doing a great job. I'm just <laughs> saying... That that's how it works. Some, if they want to sue you, any, anybody can, it's, you know, it's just your job to fight it at that point. But, um, so, all right, I want to get into the nitty gritty a little bit. We've talked about some good stuff. So I want to talk a little bit about what it was like to come into the hailstorm of suspensions that you've had to deal with. So can you just clarify what exactly you've had to deal with in that scenario? I don't care about individual cases, because I don't give a shit about any of the suspensions. I do not like the suspensions. I'll put that out publicly. I don't like suspending people for no matter what. I mean, there's got to be a reason. So obviously there was reasons on your guys' part. You guys had reasons to do what you had to do. Why have you not publicly, or why have no, why has no one publicly said anything about the, the reasons? I think the best way to answer that is, you know, a, a discussion I had with a friend once about, um, 
you know, the church, right? So if you talk about the Mormon church, right? If the Mormon church excommunicates somebody, you know, do they, they, they don't come out and say like, hey, this person was excommunicated for X, Y, Z. It's just a very statement of fact. And some of that, again, unfortunately goes back to um, what we talked about with lawyers, right? You know, right. if you, if you go through the process and, and, and you, you know, everybody instinctually wants to try to explain their position. And at the same time, from an organizational perspective, the more you try to explain a position, <laughs> the the more the more stuff you put out there that could be potentially used. You know, oh my in case. God, it's so true. That's so and, and, true. <laughs> and, and and it's you know it it's a really it's yeah. really frustrating to be able to 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 be in this position where you're like, you know, I get it, and and it's very difficult. It's been a very uh, challenge to kind of discuss with the board that like, look, you know this is the statement this is this is what we can say and anything beyond that you know potentially puts the organization in a place where if somebody wanted to pull up a lawsuit or anything like that and and, and the organization has gone through that before where you know in in the interests of trying to do the right thing they may, you know you end up putting something out there that becomes you know fodder for legal action yeah i think um i think one thing that i we've discussed this a little bit uh, that's one of the reasons I want to have you on the podcast is I feel like you get a pretty shitty rap. Um, not everybody dislikes you, obviously, because you're on here with us. And I think a lot of people love you. And I think a lot of people love what you, your passion for the sport. Uh, but I think you get a lot of shit or a lot of people dislike some of the things that you're doing because you're the president, right? So it doesn't matter whether you're doing anything or if you're involved in it or not involved with it. It just happens to be you're the guy in charge and that's the, you're the finger to point at, right? So it doesn't really matter uh, if you were involved or not involved. You're the guy that took over at probably one of the most contentious times in, in our sport. I mean, I've been in this four years and I've never seen it this hot before about, you know, it, I think it's some of it starting to chill out a little bit, but it's been pretty nasty lately to the point where I stopped watching a lot of people because <laughs> I just got tired of, I just want to go shoot. You know, I just, the negativity that it just gets old. So, um, yeah, man, I'm glad you answered that. Cause I think that, I think that's a, a frustration for most people is they, they just want to know exactly what's going on and we're not getting answers. Right. So basically there's your answer. Everybody as lawyers. I think I talked about that about five seconds before that it was good timing. <laughs> it was good timing. <laughs> so a couple of different things I want to talk about. So right now you are sitting at actually one of my favorite places. So last year at the end of the year, I went to California, did my first class and um, you're sitting at Richmond. So I actually had an amazing class there and I'm going to, I don't want to mess up John's last name. Is it John O'Yang? Oh my God. Yeah. John O'Yang. Okay. So yeah, John he's, he's the guy that he's the guy that runs uh Pew Pew labs. Yeah, he, dude, actually, he just hooked me up with some of those. Todd, I've got to send you a link to some of that stuff. They're really good with the X's for the for PCC hands and barrel and all that stuff. He's He makes some really good stuff for the uh, uh, I'll, I'll send you some pictures. So um, but I talked to John and John asked me if I'd come out and I was like, man, that's awesome. You know, I'd love to and uh, sold the class out. And it was one of my best classes. I've never had so much feedback from students like just the way that class went. It was pretty awesome. So walking around that club, dude, I got to tell you, I've been to quite a few ranges and I go around the country and shoot. And I'm, I'm always interested in how everybody else runs their matches and their clubs. That place is pretty kick-ass. Like 
that place honestly brought me back to thinking California has a chance. I know it doesn't, but it has a chance with the people that are there and the way you guys run that club. Like you have a lot of shitty people in that, in that state. But I was like, I met so many great people in California. I actually met a couple of people that started talking to me about guns on the street. I was like, where am I? Like, this is not, they're not, you're not allowed to talk about guns in California. So it was kind of interesting. Um, like how, how many people are like, I think they're just hiding. They don't, they can't say it out loud or they'll get beat up or go to jail, whatever it is there. But I thought it was pretty cool that like that club, man, you have like a chrono bay where anybody who's a member can come in and kind of borrow, use the chrono. Uh, like you had reloading machines where guys have access to where they can come in and uh, do test rounds. I thought that place was just really cool. Like it and was just an interesting place and a bar. And, well, and I, a bar. I don't do the bar thing. I don't do the bar thing. I'll tell you <laughs> that right now. So actually I didn't even drive around the range. I was, I got there late and built John met me. We I gave me access to everything and helped me build the stage that I need to build. And then we did the class and, and um, I, I went and looked at some of your long range stuff. We actually, it was raining the next day. We did a private lesson at the end and we did some, uh, we didn't even shoot a bullet, but we went to the long range where it was, they had a, a, like a concrete cover and we just practiced movement inside there the whole time, but really, really nice club. Everybody was super nice. Um, that, that just, you know, you guys have a really cool place. So you run that you're the president of that club. Uh, I was the president. So okay. um, I was the president for two years. I think that was around the time that you were there, Tyler. And then um, yep. our, pre our, our range president uh, term is basically two years, Okay, so one year, but you can, you can, can hold two terms consecutively and then you have to take a break. You can still be on the board. So I was on the board uh, for two years after that. And then right around the time that I got elected to USPSA president was the time that I termed out. So so now I get to deal with the same, some of the same issues we de dealt with at the range, except at a national right. level now. So why do you do, two, why do they do a two-year term like that? Um, that's actually a really good question. I mean, the range has been around since what, the fifties. Um, and that's just the way the bylaws were structured was to have basically a, a president that could hold a term for one year, two years, uh, uh, two consecutive one year terms. And then you had to take a break. So you could theoretically be president forever. You just have to take a break every two years. It's so, probably uh, good because that you never get stuck with the same, you know, you find new ways of doing things, maybe more efficiency from someone else. Maybe, you know, obviously it keeps you from burning out as well. Cause running a club in general is a lot of work. People don't realize. So well, I mean, the club president here is, you know, very similar to uh, the, the position at USPSA where, you know, there's not a whole lot of formal executive power, but just by the fact that you're in the position of leadership, you know, you can, you can steer the conversation in certain ways, right. um, dealing with a board that, you know, again, it's, it's a part-time board uncompensated. So, um, you know, people can only pay so much attention to all the ins and outs of running a club, especially within California. Right. So I'd also like to talk about, because when I said I had a lot of conversations with quite a few of my students, went out to eat with everybody, a couple of guys. And uh, I talked to John a lot. I still actually became friends with John. We talked quite a bit. Actually, I just talked to him about doing two more classes there. I'm going to do one in, um, oh my gosh, I think it's June. Uh, and then I have one in February I want to do. I've got to try to figure out a schedule with that still, see if ever, if we can get that filled in before. I mean, I know it's coming up soon, but um. I talked to him a little bit about how many shooters you guys have. And a couple of the guys that I was talking to in the class were like, yeah, I shoot on Saturday. I have to shoot in the dark. I said, what? He goes, yeah, we have 150 shooters every weekend here. I'm like 150 shooters 
a weekend. I'm like, holy shit, dude. So like you guys have a full day Saturday and a full day Sunday. Like, uh, it's like a, it's it's an abbreviated Saturday schedule. And and even that Saturday thing is something that was fairly recent. Um, we've just we don't we don't turn people away uh, because we recognize that, you know, if you want to come out and shoot, we're, we're going to find a place for you. Yeah. And it's just grown to the point where you basically had to run what most people would consider a regular match up to 50 people on a Saturday. Um, and that, that makes things very compressed because we also run a, <laughs> a regularly scheduled practice from, you know, nine to one. It's, it's been like this since the beginning where we know that not everybody's able to get to the range and practice. So every Saturday you have the opportunity to practice on a practice stage uh, on a static line. Uh, it's organized practice. And then we basically have like, two hours to build so we basically throw up a six-stage match in like two hours and then shoot and then yeah. everybody comes back on on sunday and shoots so it it's it's a lot it's basically like running a section match every two weeks yeah you guys don't mess around with your equipment like all the walls are made out of two by fours those are some sons of bitches to move around i'm not gonna lie uh <laughs> i was like dude these are not easy to just make a little adjustment you're picking up freaking houses <laughs> oh shoot they used to be heavier than that yeah that's crazy yeah man you guys have a great club like it was really it was really cool oh i also want to bring up that you only have one bay for most of the or one berm for most of those bays so I thought that was interesting. And that's where I started. Like the club that I started at only had one berm. So you have to be pretty creative. And now that I've had a class there, I watch a lot of the students. Um, I, they, a lot of those guys will hit me up on, on Instagram or Facebook. After I take a class, I kind of keep an eye on my students. Um, so some of them became master members where I can actually, I watch their videos. But man, you guys do put up some pretty good stages, even with one berm. It just takes a little extra effort. Uh, I've been, And it's funny because I was talking to those guys about it. I was like, yeah. Um, it takes a lot of extra work to put in good matches when you only have one berm. <laughs> so yeah, and they were like, yeah, we, yeah. Cause well, I mean, what happens is uh, unfortunately, you know, guys get burned out or they just don't want to make the effort and they just make a straight line and you just go left to right or right to left. And it's just a straight run. I'm like, dude, those suck. Like those are good for a little while, but they don't make you any better. They just make you fast in a straight line. Well, we don't shoot in straight lines almost ever in major matches. So I just thought it was pretty cool. I've been watching a lot of your stages lately because I, you know, obviously I, I have a lot of students from there now. And uh, it was pretty cool. It was, uh, it, it made me, it made me like kind of smile inside. Cause I was like, man, I did this for like two years. <laughs> like figuring out how to build shit on one berm was not easy. <laughs> no, so it's not. It, it's, it's a challenge. It's definitely a challenge at least. So I, the other thing is, is how many, how do you guys structure your, your range when it comes to help? So you have 150 shooters on average. How many people you think help? Like what's your average help rate? Like, I don't need a percentage, but like how many numbers, what, what do you think? 10 people, 20 people. Let's see. If you count the squad that runs practice, probably let's call it 20, 20 out of 150. God, that's a shitty number, but a good number still. <laughs> I mean, 20 is better than three. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's usually 20 to 20 sub odd. I mean, and, and that's just, that's just the formal help. Right. You know, but the assumption, you know, the, the, the expectation, if you show up and shoot on a Saturday is that, Hey, if you show up early and we're not done, yeah. Have a hammer. You're helping. Right. You yeah. know, and sometimes they jump in and sometimes they just walk away and we go, yeah, you can walk the stage when we're done. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Good answer. Todd, what, what are you, what is your average help? Cause you do a Saturday, you do a Friday build the weekend before. 
Um, <clears throat> we're doing it Sunday and Fridays now, and Sundays I usually can get three to eight people, and on Fridays it's closer to three or four. So your average would be three to four on both days usually? Probably, yeah. Mm -hmm. And some there's one time where I'll not expect him to have 10, and I'm like, what the heck just happened here? Yeah. So do you yeah. see super rare? Do you see <laughs> yeah. the same people every time usually? Yeah, it's the same. There's the yeah. core and the uh, the outer core is really the same. There's not anybody that just showed up that I'm like, who are you type thing? So right. So do you struggle when you have more people? Um, actually, no, because then we can break up into two or three groups and then just knock the stages out. Usually, per stage, I think the max I like having work on a stage is three, and then if you get Two groups of three running it you can get six stages up pretty quick do you break it up to where you have like i know tyler's one of your main guys because he's mm -hmm. dumb like all of us who works all the time uh <laughs> for free uh yeah. do you like send tyler with a group of people and then like yourself with a group so that you don't, they're never just like some random people run that you don't like they don't no, there's usually, normally? And all of us have done it long enough that we've set up stages and can run a stage setup through them i'd say eight sixty percent of them can so that's yeah. usually not an issue. It's like me, Ryan, Randy, and Tyler all can kind of lead a group that's setting up a stage. So right. Yeah, man. Do you do the same thing? Do you guys have like specific stage builders and then everybody just follows that plan? Like, do, the, do you guys print out your stuff ahead of time? I mean, that's a lot of people to kind of 20 people is a lot to manage. Like, if you have 10 people trying to build a stage together, that's a nightmare. One stage is a nightmare with 10 people of different ideas. We really, I mean, so the way that we normally do this is, well, whoever the match director is, um, and we started doing a match director and a co-match director so that the co-match director would kind of get their feet wet before we kicked them out on their own. That's so awesome. uh, you'll, we'll usually post up on Facebook and say, hey, I'm the match director. I need stage designers. And then various folks will volunteer. Uh, those people are the primaries. So whatever they design, they have, they come out with and they put that out there. And if we, as we get people to come in and help, it's like, okay, you guys go help this guy. You guys go help this guy. And I, I think what Todd talks about, you know, three is probably pretty decent. Um, you know, Tyler, you know, with, with Bay three, you know, we usually work on that last as a practice. So we usually throw the most people at that Bay because oh, yeah. it's, it's the biggest, widest Bay. And, and that's the most, you know, you're just trying to get things down. Um, but you know, on, on top of the stage builders, you know, we have a safety committee, uh, that's me and uh, a couple of other guys. So there's just, there's a lot of backstops to try to basically make things go faster. So the, the, <laughs> the, the designer, they might build stuff, but then there's a group of experienced CROs and ROs that right. come in behind and go, okay, move that. Uh, what is yeah. this doing here? And we try, it, it is, it's really difficult to remember sometimes that you just want to make sure that the, the stage is safe and is acceptable for the rules. Um, I'm sure if you're like me, Tom, you know, we're just kind of like, oh my God, what is wrong with the stage? There's too many no shoots. Ah, oh, take these no shoots off. Take this hardcover off. Yeah. Too many leans. This is anti-PCC. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm unfortunate and fortunate to have the same builders every single week. So we build two a week, two a month. We do first Sunday and third Sunday. And I, I work with two other guys, John Newhoff and Jim Killeran. And they do really good job. Like I don't, the only time I really check their stuff is for like shoot throughs or whatever, but those guys make great stages. So it's funny. Cause my goal has always been to make level three 
match designs were level one. Like I, I really want it to be hard. Like, and I don't mean like, oh man, this is like impossible, but I want it to be like worse than nationals. So where if I come there and shoot it, you're going to be challenged, right? You're not going to come up here and go, dude, what's this five yard bullshit the whole time, right? Like you're going to, I'm going to throw a 35 in there with a five yard target, right? Kind of like, you know, kind of thing, like make you focus on shooting. Like you're going to have to learn how to shoot when you come to my match. And we have two other guys that, so unfortunately we have three people that build, right? So it's me, John and Jim. Well, Jim, uh, we build Saturday night because I still want to shoot. Like, so if I come on Sunday morning and build my match is over, I don't want to shoot. I'm, I, I just, I hate it. Cause I, my focus isn't on shooting. My focus is on running a match. Unfortunately, even when I build on a Saturday, my focus is still on a match <laughs> because I'm giving a safety briefing, checking the new guys, you know, watching scores. And then people show up late because they don't give a shit about your schedule. And then you got to put them in and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's like, it's a great, it's a great problem to have, I guess, because I get to build really cool shit. And like, what keeps me doing it is it's hard and it's practice for me. And recently I've had a lot more verbal conversations with people. Like people are coming to us and telling us how awesome our match is. Like to the point where people are like, dude, we got to come, we got to start going to that match. And that's what I wanted. I've always wanted that. I want people to come to our match and enjoy the shit out of it and understand. And I don't need a, like an, an attaboy. I just want to make sure it's a good match. Right. So our average match is 40, I would say 50, to 60, 60 right now is difficult because we shoot so much. Like there's four or five matches uh, a week <laughs> we have in our area. So there's, there's always matches to shoot. So for us, it's very difficult to sell out a match just because everybody goes to all these other places, but we're getting people that shoot those other matches and they're starting to skip those to come to us, which is, I don't want to take business away. But I, I, I love the fact that they're like, dude, that's the match, right? That's the goal. I want to be the match. And that's what I like, kind of what I've always been like when I'm talking to Todd about doing South Carolina and, and like having that structure for the, for the sponsors and, and making all these matches that I'm involved with, like the match to go to, well, that, that's what this sport's supposed to be. That's what you're supposed to have now locals, you know, it's hit or miss sometimes because they're just, sometimes you don't have the help. So you can't throw up that awesome, badass stage all the time. Uh, I know one thing that I try to put up all the time is activators, but just so everybody knows in the world, it takes 45 minutes to an hour for one activator <laughs> because yep. you put the swinger up, then you got to move the popper. Then you got to adjust the cable. Then you got to adjust the barrel to cover the damn swinger. And then you put something in and you're like, shit, I can see the swinger from the left side. Now I got to put something else up. And then I got, it's not easy, right? Especially not if you make it difficult. I mean, you can make the shit real easy and put the swinger out there wide open. Sure. No problem. <laughs> but if you want to make it where it's a real match and real challenging, it's not easy to, to throw that, throw that activator up there. So that's something that I've been focusing on. I, I also use a lot of steel in my matches. Um, I, I can't tell you the last time I used a big popper unless I was using it as an activator. Um, you're going to come to my matches. You're going to have to aim, <laughs> right? And you're going to have to learn how to shoot when you come to our matches. So it's just, I was really glad we talked about this because this was something that I love the culture at your club. I really enjoyed, like to me, that was something that like kind of hammered home like my thought process on USPSA lately about how the local match is, is King, in my opinion. 
And I just feel like we need to get back to that. I know. I mean, we really do. We need, I don't know if we've ever been there, but I hope we do get there to where the local matches are treated more like the core of USPSA. <laughs> Cause I think it is. Well, I mean, at, at the end of the day, the, like, like we talked about earlier, I mean, the club match is what most people are going to see and that's going to be their experience yep. when it comes to USPSA. Yeah. And that's something that I've tried to change at my club. Um, well, I don't want to say change, but since we've created the club, um, I've tried to always, if you're a new person and you come up to me, dude, you're going to get extra sweet Tom. Like you're going to get a lot of extra attention because I want you back. Right. I mean, listen, I'm not going to lie. We have new shooters constantly at our club and it's amazing. Like it's good and bad because you have to, you know, watch their safety for the, for a little while and everything else. But it's awesome because every single time we get a new shooter, I'm like, dude, this is like the fifth guy this week. Like, oh, and then last week we had five new faces and they're coming back, right? They're not just shooting and then leaving. They're coming back. And then if we don't see them for a week or two, they come back. And it's just like, wow, like, oh, we had so much fun, man. You guys are so helpful. Um, I also promote other shooters that we have at our club that, that don't, that aren't specifically part of our club, but they shoot there all the time. I'm like, listen, you're on this squad. If you have any questions, just ask that guy or ask this guy. If you have a gun broken, ask anybody, we'll all help you. And then they gain that, they gain that trust in like, this is a, an open sport. Unfortunately, I started at a club that wasn't like that. Um, I mean, I didn't have anybody talk to me for a couple of weeks. You know what I mean? Like truly talk to me. They, I mean, I just talked to everybody, so they didn't have much of a choice, but <laughs> uh, you know, for me, if you're a new person, you come up to me, I don't give a shit if you're at nationals or wherever, if I meet you and I know you're new or you're, you're trying to learn something new, man, I love that. Cause I remember how I was and I, and I've, that's what shaped the way I treat people in this sport is how I was treated. So it, it's, you know, it's kind of like being beat by your dad. You're like, I'm not going to beat my kid, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> I'm going to change it up and make it better for people, you know? So that's just kind of what it was for me. It was a big thing um, to just make sure you treat everybody new, you know, special, bring them back. What the hell are we doing? You know? Well, you, you right. want them to come back. I mean, if they don't come back, then yeah. you're, you're basically losing out. All right. So let's get into what everybody's been waiting on. I, you know, I hit a little bit on the suspensions, but Let's get into the limited 10 and the limited optics and screwing up my carry optics division. Uh, let's talk about it. So, we are not touching carry optics right now. I know. It's not on the table. Kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know. I just, I had to poke it in there, man. Come on. You got to, you got to no, start like, trauma all the time. Code. No, we're just, we're just going to change carry optics. So Tyler can't run some giant X-wing like Sean Kalegi. <laughs> <laughs> All right, wait, wait. Before we get into that conversation, that was a little teaser. So you're going to have to wait because we'll, I'll probably finish on that conversation. Before we go, I have to ask you about World Shoot, dude, because that's something I cannot walk away from because you got to go to World Shoot. So I'm really, I'm really interested in how was it? Um, it was your first World Shoot? Uh, yep, first World Shoot. And ever. first World Shoot as a representative of the USPSA, correct? Uh, yes, yes, as the, as the regional director. That's awesome. So what exactly, before we get into your personal experience with with going there, what does the regional director do? Do you know what you're supposed to do <laughs> after four months? <laughs> uh, it, well, I, I was, it was kind of a learning process. So the regional director essentially represents their region to the rest of, of uh, IPSC. So they, they give briefs on kind of the status of the sport in their country. Uh, they, depending on what region you're part of, you know, you can have a, 
you can have an outsized say on the direction that the sport moves. So, you know, when people go, hey, the board has already figured out what they're going to do with the rules and whatnot. I mean, at, at USPSA, there's basically nine of us that vote on the rules. Uh, in IPSC, there's like 65 to 70. Holy crap. So, you know, every, every country that has a region and, you know, they can, they can proxy votes and whatnot. So, you know, Jesus, there's, there's an IPSC in Malta. There's like an IPSC in, uh, in Gibraltar. Right. And, and theoretically that little tiny country uh, has just as many votes as I do, which is one. So is that, con- so a country is considered a region? Uh, generally. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so Europe is yes. so Europe has a lot because they're so broken up, right? There's just so many little small countries kind of connected together, correct? Like yeah, the, so like so they Belgium really have a lot a region, of different right. right. So it, you gotcha. know, generally, like you know, the United Kingdom has a region, France has a region, Netherlands has a region, so on and so forth. Um, and they're you name it, like they they've all got their own um regional issues that they kind of have to deal with. Right. Okay. All right, man. That's interesting. I just I didn't know. And I, we talked about this for a few minutes at the Pan American Games, uh, the one that was in um, uh, Frostproof. We talked for just a few minutes about it when you were doing it there. So that was actually your first time that you were kind of representing uh, the United States uh, or USPSA uh, when you did the Pan American, correct? Correct. So did you learn a little bit at that time? Did you carry that over to the world shoot? Like, did that kind of give you a little, I mean, hell, that was like the shotgun blast of uh, experience because it was like for only a couple of days, but were you able to kind of, gain some experience from that and know what you needed to do when you went to the world shoot, or was it kind of all new when you got to the world shoot as well? Yeah, it was actually really helpful. Um, so, you know, believe it or not, IPSC, just like USPSA has a core group of officials that travel all over the place. Right. Uh, so it was really interesting that, you know, that I think 80, 90% of the IROA guys that we saw at uh, Frostproof. Yeah. They were in Thailand too. Wow. And, you, you know, pe- people talk about the staff and how hard it is to, to get good staff into uh, USPSA. Uh, you're talking about guys that are literally traveling to matches from all over the place, right? Like there's this German cop that I know, uh, you know, that he, he literally went from Florida to Thailand, left Thailand, went to go work a level three shotgun match in Greece was like by himself for Christmas for a little bit. And then went and worked like another shotgun match in the Czech Republic in the snow, because, you know, he just cares about the sport that much. Um, and, and these guys are not getting paid like ridiculous amounts of money. Um, you know, the, 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 the IPSC, you know, payment system, it was like $500 if you want to get reimbursed, but there are some people that are just like, you don't have to reimburse me at all. And they're paying out of pocket. Right. I mean, it's, 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 they're, they're, you know, the really good officials, just like the ones that we see here, like they're dedicated, they really care. Um, and, and being able to kind of establish that relationship, you know, just, I think it was something that was mentioned to me was that, um, you know, at, at the Pan American, right? Like, you know, we, we always try to make it a point at our major matches to thank the staff, right? You go up there and say, hey, you know, the staff dinner, we say like, hey, thanks for coming out here. We really appreciate you coming out. Um, and so I, I, I took the time to do that at the Pan American and it was comment to me later that like, that was the first time a regional director actually had come out and thanked the IRO staff. And I'm like, what do you mean? I thought that was normal. Right. Like, cause you know, these guys were coming from like all around the world. Um, and so, you know, that, that was, that was a surprising, that's something that we instinctually do because, you know, with, without staff, you really can't have a match, um, yep. you know, to not have, 
you know, to have a regional director personally thank them. And they're like, what is this guy doing here thanking us? We've never had that before. I'm like, it was, it was, it really helped, you know, it really helped quite a bit so that when we got to the world shoot, you know, Jody and I were out there and we saw, you know, th these, these were guys that I had just met barely a month ago. And it was like, Oh, it's you and Jody. Like, you know, we're so happy to see you guys. And, and did it he really, say it's Mr. President? No, Come they did on. not say Mr. President. That guy's a dick. Just a guy. <laughs> I'm just a guy. But you know, it, it just it it really, you know, what once you get to know people as 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 persons, and they realize that you know you're not just the some president guy, just a guy. <laughs> then you know it, it really it really helped out quite a bit. I mean, just it, it to the point where you know you would get Iroa people helping me or Jody out to try to get things done, and you got all these internationals going. Who is this random? Who's this random woman riding on the cart with like the RM? It's like, oh, because we have friends. We have That's friends. Awesome. So, you know, that it, it just yeah. it, it really did help. I mean, and, and at the end of the day, it's it's just really amazing how much you know the international guys, I mean, they're just as committed as we are, they're just as uh enthusiastic about the sport. They literally have the same concerns that we do, talking about like scoring and the rules and you know, why do we do this, why do we do that? Um, you know, and, and so this, the sense of, you know, Ipsic being, you know, the, the, the next best thing. I mean, even they'll say like, Hey, we, we just kind of made this number up. Um, and there's, there's a lot of that, you know, Hey, why did we do this? Well, this is technically why we did it. And we just have never really addressed it. So even things like production 15, right, uh, Tyler. So, you know, I was talking with a regional director about that last night and it was, it was really a number that was picked to try to have some sort of consistency, um, across across production, you know, to try to have a level playing field, it, it wasn't necessarily something that was you know picked for a particular reason or another. Because in in, in Ipsic production, there's no box, whereas in USPSA production, we have a box. So you know that's part of explaining why we put out that possibility of just fill your mags to capacity it just has to fit the box, uh, because we have a structure in place to kind of keep things from getting you know. Uh, too far outside of whatever you know the idea of production is. Ipsic does the same thing with standard because they didn't want guys running you know seven inch limited guns. I'm not exactly quite sure what the reason was for that, but you know they basically put some kind of restriction into standard uh, limited that we do in production for you know very much the same reasons. So it, it was it was a really good experience. You know, it's always interesting when you have a bunch of you know navy guys. So. Thailand, you know, they, they, they had pasters. Uh, so contrary to popular belief, level four and level four, five matches, those are really where you'll have pasters um, out there for you, re staff reset. Um, a level three match, their level three matches are just like our area national matches. You know, sometimes you're pasting and sometimes you're not. Uh, but, you know, it, it's always nice when you have the Thai Royal Navy basically tell a bunch of junior enlisted, you will spend two weeks and paste. <laughs> and, and by the end of the two weeks, Oh, th th they look like junior enlisted. They were ready to go home. Nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Pasting, pasting is a lot of work, man. It's uh, especially after two weeks, that's a shit ton of work. Are you, um, so when it comes to rule changes, when it comes to USPSA, are they looking to, be, um, direct it more to where IPSC and USPSA are kind of trying to come together a little bit on the rules. Like the box is a good thing. Uh, a good, good question. Like, are we going to possibly eliminate the box, uh, keep the box? Are we looking to kind of like join those rules together or is there a big separation still in our rules versus their rules? Um, it's an ongoing discussion. I mean, like anything else, you know, there is a, re a recognition that 
um, you know, I, I still have some period of time, you know, before an election comes up. Uh, but it, it is a constructive discussion. You know, there were guys that I, uh, that we spoke out there that, you know, that loved how we implemented carry optics, right? You know, 140 millimeter magazine does not exist in IPSC, right? So, you know, I, there were guys saying like, you know, we loved what you did with carry optics, right? 140 millimeter mags, you know, shoot all the bullets, um, you know, if, and, and we, the, we allow far more flexibility with what you could do with a polymer frame striker gun that IPSC does. So again, you could have a competitive environment where, you know, Nils wins with a $600 canic because, you know, there's things that he, there, there's things that we allow folks to do in, in carry optics that IPSC doesn't allow. And so it, there really is a significant disadvantage to try to run a polymer frame pistol. Um, you know, this idea of limited optics, you know, that wasn't just, you know, that, that was something that was being discussed with uh, IPSC as well. Uh, you know, hey, you know, we're, we're seeing dots on, on single action guns as well. You know, is this something that we should consider? Um, what have they you know, thought of? Are they, did they think about doing it yet? Or is that in consideration over there? Uh, it was it was something that was put on the table, and then we we sort of tabled that for now. Um, but the uh, IPSC does recognize that you know to a certain extent we do kind of drive the industry. So there all there are things that are going to be unique to the United States because I mean a really good example, right? We're sitting around and everybody's talking about all these issues they're having with their governments about being able to run matches. And then I'm over here going like, yeah, we can still do whatever we want. Um, hey, can you come annex us, please? Uh, sure. W when do you want to declare war so we can take you over? Um, the crazy you know, part is the worst part of that conversation is he's talking to a dude from California and you have more freedom. And we're like, dude, that place is a hellhole with comes the guns. <laughs> I will, I got to admit, I have never felt more like a victim than I did when I was in your state. Like, I'm not kidding, dude. I was like, all I wanted to do was have a gun. And I don't know if it was because I couldn't have a gun, but I was just like, I want a gun. Like, because I can't have one. Like, I just felt like I was the next, it's really crazy feeling I had because I couldn't have one in California. It was like, dude, I always had a knife. I was like, man, I'll go to jail. I'm having something like I don't do. I mean, I, I was like, I'm going to carry something. I don't know what the rules are for knives there. Who knows? Um, because I know if you're a law abiding, a citizen, you have less um, rights than the asshole who just robs everybody. But I was like, I'm not going on, uh, you know, not protected here. But I was like, man, I feel like a sheep right now. Like somebody's going to come over here and just beat the shit out of me and steal my stuff. <laughs> yeah, it that's, just that's really much sucked. It was a shitty feeling, honestly. And such great people that I was around. It was just like, man, you guys live with this every day they're like yeah it really sucks yeah no i mean jo every time jody comes and visits she's like reaching in her purse going oh i can't uh, she, got oh, that, what's she got that spike thing on her uh on well, her that, damn, the, little, yeah. the little wand thing the wand, yeah. yeah that's hilarious so, though but i mean so, you know there, there's progress so yeah. but yeah that, that, that's um there is some discussion you know where where our rule sets could be you know could could be better more closely together you know that that, that was a, a pretty constructive discussion as far as you know hey we like we like they liked what we did with you know some guys like what we give carry optics you know more than we did this idea of of standard optics and limited optics i mean it, it is something that was being considered and not just from a you know of like oh like there's there's some sort of massive like donation from from manufacturers i'm like no that's that's not really the case um even with uh, you know the, the the proposal from 
IPSC, which was probably the most honest I've ever uh, seen, was, hey, uh, our guys who used to shoot limited, they're getting old and they can't see the irons anymore, but they <laughs> like their 2011s. So can we just let them put a dot on? It's like, oh, okay, that, that's actually that's actually a pretty honest reason. Right. You know, I, I still like my 2011, but I can't see the irons anymore because I'm old and I don't want to spend a million dollars for an open gun. And I don't like, you know, shooting a production gun. Can I just put a dot on and shoot it that way? Yeah.